Let's go ahead. I wanted to spend some time in Psalms. And I'll give you a little bit of background. If you'd like, you can turn there. But I'm going to have to warn you, I'm going to have a little bit of a, a lengthy introduction to this psalm. And I kind of tied in an introduction to it because I know Jake's been teaching through the book of Hebrews. But before I do that, I, have to, I kind of have to come clean a little bit. And I know you guys probably haven't uh, had to deal with some of that that I've had to deal with. But uh, over the last year and a half or so, I found myself somewhat um, unusually... Uh, let's say disturbed. And I remember it kind of started to come to this culmination one Saturday morning. I was up early and I was sitting in my favorite reading chair and I kept opening up the scriptures and I'd start to read and then I found my, my mind racing to all kinds of things. And uh, I started thinking about my grandkids and I was started thinking about the elections and COVID and the media and the state of our nation. And I would take it that out of your mind. Let's go back to the scriptures. And uh, I'd try to go back there. And then I'd find myself. And I finally, like, I literally kind of sat up in a chair. And I said, Jay, what is going on? And I said, you are fretting and worrying. Uh, no, no, Jay, Jay, I'm a pretty even keel guy. I'm not going to, look, I'm an elder. No, Jay Pitts was fretting and worrying. And suddenly I realized I'm going to mark this down. So literally we have a, a thread with the pastors and I text the other elders. I said, hey, guys, just pray for me. I'm sitting here this morning and I found myself fretting and worrying about the circumstances around me. The really neat part was in my just reading through the scriptures, I was coming into some of those early Psalms. And I started reading those psalms, and he just started ministering to my heart in a way that never had. And I just started seeing that the psalmist would always proclaim, and, I, and I'd think about, here's David, like he would say, my enemies have surrounded me. They, I'm in fear of my life. Now, I'm fretting, and I'm a long ways from fearing for my life. I'm, I might be fearing for some other people's lives that I'd like to get a hold of, but not my own. But... uh and I started reading those psalms. Well, uh, out of that, I uh, had an opportunity, and I just wanted to teach from one of those psalms, and that's Psalms 29. But this morning, I'd like to look at a, a psalm. But before we do, I'd like to, re uh, to read Hebrews 12.25, which is the fourth warning passage in that uh, book. Uh, and, it's, and it's warning us of the danger of falling away. And I'm sure Jacob's, Jake's been in this, but it's amazing to me that when you start reading commentaries, how they try to make so many excuses, and they immediately start to say, oh yeah, but a Christian can't lose his salvation. And, and I agree with that. And I know those passages from Roman 8 and all that. But the reality is there's warning passages to these Jewish believers, and they're real, and we should never try to undermine those. This New Testament passage presents the same truth as the psalmist wants to establish in our minds in a little bit. In those moments and seasons or even long stretches of time when we forget the promises and the character of God, as was a few months ago for me. It is this immutable or this unchangeable characteristic of God that we need to believe and rehearse in our minds to keep us from despair. 
or even anger. And as we watch that which we hold precious be taken away. Again, by way of introduction, let me read this passage from Hebrews. I'm not necessarily going to try to exposit this, but I'm just going to use it as a means of introduction. Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. And His voice shook the earth then but now he is promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That comes from Haggai 2 verses 4 through 7. And he says this, this expression, yet once more, denotes the moving of those things which cannot be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. See, the, the author of Hebrews is warning all his readers about making sure that they, that they not excuse or refuse the authority of God's written word. The speech that goes forth is something that we must humble ourselves and uh, bring all of our thoughts captive to. It is the authority. The clear warning in this passage is, is uh, you should fear God who has spoken. He's not a God that remains uh, quiet, uh, revealed. He has spoken. He's revealed Himself in the written Word of God. His speech, His words, therefore then should not be ignored. Or I could even say it this way, to ignore God's revelation is to place yourself in great danger. His words are dependable. They're sure. He alone is above all earthly imaginations. His speech is powerful. Why? Because by His mere speaking, He is able to shake all that we see on earth. In the past, He has shaken And in the future, He will shake all of these things once more. But be encouraged because we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, even in what He plans to do, there's eternal purposes for the good of those who love Him. The idea of judgment is seen in this passage. And this spoken judgment will destroy everything but that which is eternal and unshakable. Look, God, by His voice, spoke into existence the earth. And by His voice, He is able to shake all that we, and even that which is all that we see here on this earth, and everything in heaven. 
God alone raises up and brings down kings and kingdoms. We look around and we think, man, we're losing freedoms. God alone raises kings and kingdoms. God wants us to fear him. And if we fear him, we won't excuse ourselves from God's written commands. The propensity of our heart is to excuse ourselves from the explicit instructions found in God's word. We are prone to have an understanding of what God's word teaches, but often we don't appreciate or even appropriate the authoritative nature of what he has said. And just like this warning in Hebrews, he's saying, don't neglect those things. Sometimes we see his eternal words as being on par with all other counsel. But we don't revere him and his word. We don't ultimately see them as the final authority or all that we need for life and godliness. We'll, we'll read some of the word, but then we'll rush to the, the latest book, the latest uh, psychology, the latest or even the latest friend that's able to, to tell me what I want to hear. In other words, we sometimes believe our heart that we can take it or leave God's revelation. And in so doing, there's no, there's no real consequences in this. We need to understand that that's unbelief. We cannot dismiss ourselves from God's speaking in His Son. In Hebrews 1 through 4, he says, God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you hear God's spoken word and the power? And that Christ exactly is the exact representation of all that that's embodied in. See, there is this coming future shaking of everything that appears to be spiritual and globally secure. It's all going to come apart. Today as we look at this psalm, I hope that we'll broaden our understanding as to the power and authority of God. We proclaim Him first, first to ourselves and then to the world that we live in. God has placed us in a unique time and a unique place that we might be witnesses of Him. The God in this psalm has expressed His uh, supremacy over all of His creation and all the heavens. He has revealed Himself uh, as the God who with His voice shakes the mountains and all of His creation responds to that. This God who, who some here may have heard about or of, but don't really know him. He is able to protect, bless, and provide for his people. So please, open your Bibles to Psalm 29. 
And uh, as you're turning there, I want to make some, some general observations about this psalm that will start to just help us kind of zero in on the purpose of David writing this wonderful psalm. First of all, this is considered to be one of the oldest psalms in all the Psalter. Talmudic tradition claimed that this hymn was used at the, at the Feast of Weeks. And in more recent years, scholars have associated with the Feast of Tabernacles or that harvest festival that uh, all the males were required to return to Jerusalem to partake in. Also in this psalm, 18 times in this, this very short uh, hymn, we see a formal title of God weaved into the text. Imagine, uh, what is this, nine, nine verses, 18 times Weaved within that is the formal title, Yahweh, for God. It is denoted by Lord, capital L's in your Bible, in caps, or Yahweh. This then could be our first hint as to the subject and the focus of David's chorus. The second general observation that you can't but come away with as you read through it is seven times the voice of God is mentioned in David's refrains, which may suggest this glue as to the source of power we will see unfold in this praise chorus. One more observation before we uh, read this. Three times glory is mentioned, which may explain the expected response from reading this psalm. It would just be the expect this is when you read this and you're you see what he's communicating, the natural response would be, I want to bring glory to this God. So let me read this psalm. Psalm twenty nine. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And he makes Lebanon skip like a calf. And Saran like a, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. 
the Lord will bless his people with, uh, with peace. Man, what a wonderful psalm. So this psalm breaks down into three stanzas and, and uh, we'll use those as an outline to better understand this short, but may we say very profound chorus of praise. Verses 1 and 2 were confronted with an imperative for humble adoration. Verses 1 and 2 were confronted with this imperative for humble adoration. Second, verses 3 through 9 were, were confronted with a voice of unanswerable power. We're confronted what we come face to face with is this voice that goes forth and it is an unanswerable power. And thirdly, we should be comforted by our enthroned King. We start this uh, imperative for humble adoration in verses 1 and 2. Let me reread these just to keep by repetitive getting these things into your mind in a time that if we look at the world around us, we can start to get a little fearful and shaky. But let's place our eyes for the next few minutes upon this great God. Now, what, now that what we will help, as, uh, help us understand is that David in these first two verses uses this uh, climactic parallelism for those who take note of this literary, this literary instrument to help make his point. This is a form of poetry in which the word, there's a word or a phrase that is repeated in sequential lines, which then finally, uh, they call it a, a, a climatic uh, parallel, is because then there's a main point that he finally throws in at the end of it. And he says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Finally, the crescendo or the pinnacle, worship the Lord in holy array. Do you see what the, the psalmist is doing? Ascribe to the Lord repeats three times. That's the parallelism. And then that great climac climactic statement. Worship the Lord notes the notes the stepping along that finally finds a crescendo in the imperative to worship the Lord. The, the command, the, the natural end would be, this is what you need, this is how you would respond to this truth. Ascribe in this context, mean, context means to appoint. Something, it, it means to appoint something that is belonging to this person, to this person. This, this God, uh, ascribe to Him, appoint to Him that which is naturally His. Uh, you give to the Lord, ascribe what is reasonably due to Him. I hope this word in this context, or I love this word in this context because it requires more than, than just a mere acceptance of some facts about God, but it charges us all that we would intellectually affirm or give to God what rightly belongs to him. It's not enough to say, yeah, yeah, I'll ascribe to him these things. No, the, the word ascribe is means, no, I need to 
intellectually get my, my will and everything involved and I want to ascribe to him these characteristics. This involves mind and will. This, this inner expression we know then would, accompanied by faith, becomes literally worship to the Lord. It's this ascribing, not just an intellectual assent to the facts, but I mean, it's like, no, I'm ascribing to him, this is what is true. Now that we have a structure to help understand this, uh, to understand what, what David's trying to do, we need to answer one more big question. And I'm going to ask that you kind of listen in because this gets a little bit technical. We see this phrase because there's a saying, the sons of the mighty ones, or some might interpret it as the sons of God. That's a, that's a common phrase. It's throughout the Old Testament. But let's look at a couple. In Job 1, 1 6-7, he says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job 2.1 he says again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. In both of these passages, you, you, uh, it seems only natural to see that these sons of God are heavenly beings uh, since Satan is present along with the Lord, at least by reference, Job in this historical narrative never seems to be aware of these heavenly meetings that take place, these councils. But for him, all he knows is he receives the discipline from the meeting. He just suddenly, he's just, it suddenly comes upon him as a result of what God has allowed to take place that came out of these councils. Literally, you have God saying, hey, Satan, uh, Satan shows up. Have you considered my... My servant Job, he's a, he's a righteous man. And next thing you know, God says, yeah, go ahead. And he said, well, he only gives glory to you because uh, you've blessed him so much. Well, you go ahead and test him. Essentially, it's what happens. So, but in that context, it seems like these are, these are heavenly beings. There's another, O sons of the mighty one, we find this phrase in, Psalm, in Psalms 89.5, used to describe heavenly beings who reside near God's presence we find this psalm. You don't need to turn it. Let me just, let, let me just read it. The heavens will, will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? O God, greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. So in, in these cases, the context would kind of dictate that these are heavenly beings. There's another place this phrase is used in Genesis 6-2. And it reads this, that the sons of God, this, these mighty ones, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now I understand if you guys go home and check me out and you start whipping out your commentaries, you're going to find all kinds of views of who these, these men are. But in reality, in light of what was taking place, I would say what the author is trying to communicate is that these are mighty men on earth, likely kings or those that even see themselves as gods with a small g, and they're taking these wise forcibly and uh, taking advantage of them. 
So although the phrase can be used to refer to either heavenly beings, we see in some cases, or it could refer to powerful earthly men and even false gods. To me, in this context, it seems most reasonable to understand these sons of the mighty as men who believe themselves to be godlike and uh, likely also, but I, I would even say there could be room to say they're also these heavenly beings. It's like the psalmist saying, I'm including everyone that would see themselves proudly and I want to challenge them about their understanding of God. David, who would have been very familiar with these false deities and their ways after so many years of warring against them and their followers may actually be calling them to ascribe to Yahweh, you sons of gods, ascribe to the true God what is due Him. This terminology may well have been familiar to the Canaanites who worship Baal. The Phoenician storm god, this, this god was paid homage to in return for rains that were so needed for their crops and resources. His image was a man standing in water with a lightning bolt in his hand and wearing a hat. If the psalm is meant to call those Canaanite deities and their purveyors to worship Yahweh, then the description the psalmist uses to describe God in verses 3, are, they are very fitting. David will proclaim Yahweh as the true God of the waters. Yes, even the great waters. Are you tracking with me? I know that's a bit of a runaround, but he's saying... Uh, what we're trying to do is understand the context. Who was he writing this to? And what was, he, what was he preaching? What was he trying to combat? And I think for the history and the segment, it's likely he's going after the purveyors of those Baal, this false god that they would pay homage to, thinking, oh, we'll do this, and he's going to send the rain. So now he's getting after it. So uh, the bottom line is, before I get you too far out in the weeds, the obvious truth is that Davis is calling those who read this psalm to uh, 1B, ascribe to God glory and strength. One com commentator explains these terms in this ma manner. Glory refers to God's importance and strength refers to God's power that we're going to, in a minute, have demonstrated for us. Glory in the Old Testament carries the meaning of this heaviness, this weightiness, this, this truth that bears heavy. Or we could even add words like, uh, it, it, to, be, to make it more rounded or in-depth is uh, importance or grandeur. So in verse 2, he again says this, Ascribe to the Lord glory, the glory due His name. In this parallelism, the author keeps building on this initial premises, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, ascribe to Yahweh what is rightly his. David, uh, David makes uh, to the, adds to the command or charge to give to God the glory or the weightiness deserving of his character 
and we'll explain in this in this in the following reasons that are going to that we're going to come into here in a minute. Finally, in 2b, he says again, worship the Lord in holy array. The last imperative then is this worship, or or literally this uh, to uh, worship and literally prostrate yourself before Him for the splendor of His holiness. This then becomes the pinnacle of this parallelism. The crescendo then is this charge to worship the one holy God who alone is pure and right. This command is to all of heaven, all of the earth, you worship this God. Ascribe to Him what is due Him. So to get us back on line where we were, David in verses 1 and 2 confronts us with an imperative for humble adoration. Secondly, in this majestic psalm, we are confronted with a voice of unanswerable power. Unanswerable power in verses 3 through 9. And as we begin to work through this, you'll start to understand, why did we read Job 27? And why did he take me to Hebrews 10 in this warning passage? Because we want to learn about the voice of God. This unanswerable power. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. At once the voice of the Lord is heard above the roar of all other waters. That voice is identified as being the voice of Yahweh. The God of glory thunders. David wants us to understand in verse 3c that God is the creator of many waters and He is over many waters. He is not just over, but He is the creator of many waters. Which we'll see again in a moment. He is over the waters in heaven and the earth. This is the one who thunders and directs the waters, hence developing the context It's not Baal. It's not the one that so many are trusting in. It's not the one you're paying homage to. You're missing the mark. Come to Yahweh. David is instructing the people of God to turn away from this false God, Baal. To ascribe to the true God just what is due to Him. Turn away from what is, has captured your imaginations. You think about that. It's captured your imaginations. You've, you've associated almost, uh, what would be the, the word uh, in this? Uh, you make these unlogical connections and it's just a figment of your imagination. Come away from those. There's only one true God. He creates and He's over all the waters. Turn away from that which has captured your imagination. Repent, it would be another way to say it, from what you've become enslaved to. And don't just acknowledge the Lord, but worship Him. He is the only authority. He is the only authority over all the waters. 
verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. Not only does he rule over it, but the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice is, the voice is the object of this revelation, and this voice is noted as having power, strength, and, and substance. The writer is not trying to merely describe a thunderstorm. That's what some have said. But he's poetically ascribing to God this power as that, as that of a voice. It's not describing. It's the voice is what is moving this great source, this, this great power. It's what's moving it along. You see, David is practicing. He's ascribing to God, not Baal. He's, he's attributing to the Lord the power acting upon this huge storm that is moving now. And literally, the, as it progresses, it's encompassing the land. God's voice alone is the agent moving these cataclysmic events. David, in this brief uh, poetic drama, is demonstrating this dominating power of Yahweh. But not only is his voice powerful, he says it's majestic. There is a, a, a magnificence about this voice. Uh, it's, there's a splendor. There's, a, there's an excellence to this voice. This voice is like no other voice. This voice is powerful, full of authority, but also high and lifted up. That which is to be admired. That's that which is to be adorned. It's the idea of it's, not, it's to be viewed but not touched. As if this isn't enough to cause David to take our thoughts even to greater understandings. He says in verse 5, the the. Now, now look, I get, this is like, I kind of get, I might start like getting really crazy because I got to, I like trees. I love trees. And when I read this, I'm just like, man, I cannot believe the power that can do this. But he says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, these trees of Lebanon, they're, they're historic. They're renowned. It, it would be like out here, me talking about the giant sequoias, the redwoods. The, these trees were known. They were valuable. They were guarded. The psalmist again ascribes to this voice this unimaginable power and authority. The, the voice of the Lord is now seen as breaking the cedars of Lebanon. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces. It is, this, it, it is as if there are two actions taking place. The, the verb tenses isn't just like uh, a strong wind come through and broke the trees off. Oh, we had a tornado and broke the trees off. Uh, you only got half of it if you get that far. No, the, the tense of the verb is that's breaking and it continues to break into pieces these grand trees. So you're thinking... Huge trees suddenly go on to toothpicks. And it just keeps happening. It's not, it's not a one time. The voice of the Lord breaks and keeps on breaking these mighty trees. 
These trees of Lebanon were, were literally world-renowned for their size and even their usefulness. They could range from 80 to 120 feet long. Now, I was looking at your building. This building is 110 feet long. So it's longer than this building, uh, 40 feet in circumference. These great trees would be, uh, like I was saying, they would be as renowned for you as the giant redwoods. In 1 Kings 5.13, listen to this. Now King Solomon levied forced labors from all Israel, and the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in relays. They were in Lebanon month, a month and back home for two months. What were they doing? They're harvesting trees. I mean, these trees were no small thing. I'll give you one more example of this. And this is how this doesn't relate. Uh, 20 some years ago, 25 years ago, we had this major hurricane come into Florida and it came through what was known as Davie, Florida, down next to, uh, it was actually about where the power plant is down there. It was kind of an unpopulated area, but it was a very intense, the strongest hurricane that I've ever heard of in recent history. I think maybe in 1927 there was a comparable one. Uh, but in 1927, there wasn't a whole lot in Florida. But anyways, this came right through down there. It was a Category 5. It was moving fast. And it just leveled everything. I was down there 10 years later. And I was visiting. In fact, he was an older guy in the church. And I was visiting uh, where he'd moved to to be with his daughter. And it dawned on me, well, I'm right in the path of where that hurricane was. And we have what they call live oak trees. And they're, they're not tall like these cedars, but they're... They kind of grow fairly tall, but they get real squatty. And you have these huge limbs that like almost come back to the ground. And I'm outside of his house. I think, boy, these oak trees are beautiful. And I mean, they're huge. And I'm starting thinking, wait, this is right where that hurricane come through. And I'm like, I thought, all, I thought everything got leveled. And so I started studying the trees. And I realized, oh, I see what happened. So you have this big limb that would go out. And all of a sudden it was cut off. And now the tree was growing all this new growth, but it had been beaten up. Now that was just a category five, really bad hurricane. But we're talking about a voice that goes forth and completely, continually shatters these trees. He's saying, I want you to think different about the voice of the Lord. He even says this, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf. And Saran, uh, like a young wild ox. Are you catching that? Wow. The voice of Yahweh not only smashes and keeps smashing these trees, but he's talking about literally the landscape like a calf or a wild ox. This area he's talking about is literally a hundred mile long mountain range. And what you should be picturing is this what would be a grotesque setting to motion as if a calf is going out in the, you know, he's, been in the he's been in the pen all winter and you finally open the gate and it's spring and he goes out and you ever seen a calf kick up its heels and that's what he's wanting you to. Now, uh, last night we, we were at his house. We're looking out watching the sunset over the uh, coastal range, right? And we probably were able to see 100 miles or so. Imagine if we were standing there and suddenly it just started just kicking up. 
becoming liquefied. You know, they talk about landslides, how the mountain gives way, and it's, it's really this landslide of dirt and rock, but yet it, it kind of has waves to it. That's what he's talking about. Have you ever seen that? These mountains, uh, uh, these mountains we may imagine have turned from solid foundations to that which begins to act more like a fluid and the ocean than mountains. We can say this, that which is old and unmovable as the hills is suddenly liquefied by the power of His voice. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Not only is His voice able to break and to keep breaking the great cedars of Lebanon, able to make the mountains skip, but it's depicted as able to carve out flames of fire. It reminds me when he says that the, the Word of God is, is powerful and sharp and able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of a man's heart. This voice is able to direct, uh, to direct for his purposes literally the lightning bolts. They are not random strikes, but precision-guided missiles to accomplish his will. That's what his voice is like. Remember in chapter, we read chapter 37 and chapter 38 of the book of Job. Then the Lord says to Job, who is this that darkened counsels, counsel by words without knowledge? He's confronting Job right now. Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the Lord of the earth Tell me if you have understanding. Jump down to the a little further on that chapter. He says, uh, but further down, he says this, who has cleft a channel for the flood or a path for the thunderbolts? David wants to ascribe to God these very characteristics. He continues in verse 8, the, verse, the, the, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. At this voice, uh, in this poetic description, is a, a great storm moving from over the sea, moving northward over Lebanon or the land which once belonged to the Canaanites and now sets its direction over the southern wilderness of Kadesh. The effect is just as powerful as previously portrayed. The voice shows no sign of weakening or lessening it is all-inspiring power over creation that would cause those watching to be overcome with this reverence and fear as they watch this voice, this power go forth. As in Hebrews 12 that we opened up with, there is the shaking of all that seems stable and sound as God's voice goes forth. There is no other power to address or weaken it. There's no place to hide from it. Verse 9, the voice, the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. 
continuing, this voice, this voice demonstrates its authority not only over all the elements, but also all the living plants or animals. This voice is able to cause the creation to calve early or to strip the entire forest bare. His speech or his words go forth to the ends of the world, never to return void. Remember that his voice that spoke into existence the earth literally from nothing. It is God's voice that will not be thwarted. It is Jesus himself when tempted that declared that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lastly, he says, and in his temple, everything says glory. If you understand this and you watch this psalm unfold, glory to him. This, this finishes with this direct, all-empowering statement that everything in God's presence says glory. It is the only appropriate response when you think about it. In light of all of, of in light of what has just been declared by the only the only appropriate response is glory. Glory to this God who has power over everything, over all creation, every nation, every other authority. Kidder says this. And what was true of the material shrine is still more what God requires of his living temples. What is true of the material shrine? Do you know what he's saying? This earth that responds, the animals that respond to his voice, oh, how much more true this earthly beings, the living temples, corporately and individually, that every part should cry, glory to God. So when we look at the psalm, first there was this, uh, an imperative of humble adoration. There was this voice of unanswerable power. And let me just wrap up. Thirdly, we, we are comforted by an enthroned king. An enthroned king. Verse 10, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sets as king forever. David in these last few lines now pulls, pull, he pulls out all the stops. He takes us back to God who rules over all the waters the storm god Baal is not king, nor, nor is it that he controls the water gates. Notice at this point, the curtain is totally lifted. And, and this credenza begins with Yahweh as king. King of the deluge, Genesis 7. And king now over all creation. The psalmist is saying in Genesis 7, 11, in, this, in the 600th year of, the, uh, of the, uh, the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, 
on the same day, all the fountains of the great and deep burst open and the floodgates of the skies were opened and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights to destroy a wicked, cursed people. God sat enthroned at the flood. Even this most catastrophic event, the Lord remained enthroned and in absolute control over bringing it about. There There are no other gods like Him. Baal is not doing these things. Only the God enthroned in heaven is able to do these. David sets before us the truth to know that God is in control and no one else. Finally, David finishes with this uh, well-known but often forgotten truth in the final line, verse 11. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. This final stanza then brings to mind the Lord who rules uh, in thunderous power, mighty promises to give strength to his people and to bless his people with peace. He does not say uh, we have to supply it, but this very God who reigns supreme, he will supply it to his people. Peace with the mighty God who sets as king over all of his creation. This is the one of the most amazing truths of the gospel that sinners may through the work of Jesus Christ have peace with this God who knows all their sins, even their sinful thoughts. And he offers peace through his son. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, are you excited about what the psalmist has done? Has he excited your heart to finally ascribe to him? Look, in the midst of everything you, saw, you guys see going on, you say, oh, but I am ascribing to God. He is the one who reigns. He is powerful. So I pray that this will be uh, an encouragement to your souls. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, your voice that goes forth and the power in which it goes forth. I just pray that you'll use this to encourage and strengthen uh, the church here in Albany, Oregon uh, for your glory for their edification, uh, for the purposes of the gospel, that it might go forth with clarity in Christ's name. Amen.